In this podcast, we look at why the Industrial Revolution was so unregulated and cruel during its first century from 1750 to 1850. You can get a sense of this from the novels of Charles Dickens, including such novels as A Christmas Carol and David Copperfield, because in these novels we see how wretchedly poor the industrial working class was in Great Britain during the first century of the Industrial Revolution. Now, it's not that the British people were inhumane or that they didn't care about their children, but there are some specific reasons why the Industrial Revolution was so harsh. And the main reason was that it was unregulated. And that raises the question, why was it unregulated? We regulate our economy. We have things like minimum wage laws, uh, workmen's compensation laws, so that if someone's injured in the job, the employer, not the employee, but the employer has to pay. And these are regulations designed to make an industrial environment humane, decent, and safe. But in the first 100 years of the Industrial Revolution, there was no governmental regulation of the economy. And the reason is simple, actually. There are several reasons. The first reason is that for the first half of that century, from 1750 to roughly 1800, the first industry in the Industrial Revolution was the cottage industry. Now, the cottage industry was industrial in just one sense. The only thing that workers received for their labor was a wage. And in that sense, it was industry. But in every other sense, it looked a lot like agricultural work, especially when you consider the way people lived back then. In other words, the first industry of the Industrial Revolution, the cottage industry, was quite humane. What people would do is they would work out of their own houses, which were, of course, pleasant environments. They worked from houses that had windows and flower pots and fresh air, just like they always had worked. What, that, what happened is that the father would bring home to the family pieces of raw wool that he had purchased from a vendor, and then they would spend the next few weeks converting that raw wool into finished pieces of cloth for which they would receive money at the end of that period of time. They would sell the pieces of cloth and the money they made from the vendor would be essentially their wage. Now what this shows you is that these first industrial workers had it pretty good. They lived in a fresh, clean environment they got to set their own working hours. If they didn't like the amount of money they were making, they could work a little harder and produce a few more pieces of cloth. And therefore, uh, it wasn't that much of a difference in terms of lifestyle from agricultural work. And it wasn't particularly cruel. The other thing about cottage labor is that for the first 40 years, from roughly 1750 to 1790, wages actually increased so when you look at the cottage industry, 
uh, it appears that there didn't seem to be any need to regulate the cottage industry. It was, it was doing quite well from a humanitarian point of view. But then after 1790, wages began to crash. Wages began to decline. And so we must return to our question, why then? Why then did government not step in? Well, the answer here is the ideology of classical economics, as it's called. Economics has been called the gloomy science because classical economics, which refers to the ideas of two Englishmen in the late 18th century, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, was quite gloomy in its predictions of the outcome of natural law on wages. Now, when you look at Adam Smith, this is not clearly apparent. Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, the first real call for free enterprise in 1776, was an optimist. Smith was optimistic through and through. He believed that if men were free to follow their passions and do whatever kind of work they wanted to do for, a, for whatever kind of wage they could get, naturally, without any kind of government regulation, they would automatically gravitate to the jobs that the nation needs done because those jobs would command a higher value. And it is true that with the law of supply and demand, things that are demanded tend to be things that people are more willing to pay for than other things. If a person wants to be an actor, for example, that doesn't particularly benefit the nation. But if the person cannot get work as an actor, but can get work as a garbage collector, and indeed there is no shortage of garbage collecting jobs, then that person can make a good wage doing something that the nation needs done. If the person can become an actor and people will pay him to see him act, then by definition that does serve the nation. But if the nation doesn't want him, he will not be hired and he'll have to do something that the nation does want done. And you see all of this is done naturally without government intervention. So to Smith, the competition for scarce jobs by competitive individuals would automatically fix the wage at an appropriate rate, but he believed that that rate would be plenty high enough to support people's quality of life. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Again, after 1790, wages crashed and people looked for explanations for it. One of these people was a clergyman named Thomas Malthus, who was interested in population trends and who influenced the next generation of classical economists under David Ricardo. Malthus, as I said, was a clergyman who was interested in the population explosion that was taking place under the Industrial Revolution. And he attributed the poverty that he saw everywhere to this rapid population growth that was creating too many workers for the available jobs. And he tried to explain the way in which population rises suddenly and then collapses through mass starvation. 
And he, he predicted that these population booms and busts would get worse and worse and worse. And he believed that this was uh, a consequence of people having too many children. And he believed that when people had more food to eat, they would automatically have more children, but that the population would always outstrip the food supply so that you could not avoid population booms during periods of good harvests, but you could also not avoid population crashes when people had so many children that they outstripped the food supply. So Malthus was gloomy too because he was pessimistic about the future. He believed that we would never be able to uh, get out of this horrible cycle of population boom and bust because the bust meant mass starvation, famine, disease, war, all of which things tend to control the population. Now, David Ricardo got a hold of this idea, and he, he used it to explain why wages were always going down, down, down. The reason, he said, is because workers were having too many children, and they were outstripping the available food, uh, and they were outstripping the available job supply. So Ricardo agreed with Adam Smith that the government must stay out of the economy, which is the idea of laissez-faire. But whereas Smith believed that when the government stayed out of the economy, everybody will get rich, Ricardo believed that when the government stays out of the economy, people will automatically become poor because they will have too many children. But he went on to say, agreeing with Malthus, that if the government stepped in, it would only make things much worse by providing free food to the poor and thereby only encouraging the poor to have even more children until a greater crash in the population occurs with more suffering. So Ricardo believed that if the government stayed out of the economy, yes, there would be suffering, but it would be less suffering than if the government stepped in and provided aid in the form of regulation of the economy. So you see these ideas of classical economics help explain why the first century of the Industrial Revolution was so unregulated and cruel, and why we see such pitiful stories of the working class poor in the novels of Charles Dickens. In our next podcast, we will look at the revolutions of 1830 and 1848, which were part of the fallout of the Industrial Revolution's first century. Until then, happy history musings.